Snapchat. Malcolm Turnbull announced that the laws of math do not apply here. <laughs> One of my favourite brands of comedy aerial is brown people and black people <laughs> making fun of white people. Senators have been dropping like flies recently. Shouting out the fact that in the Knowles-Carter family, women just have one name. Backchat on FBI Radio. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Backchat on FBI Radio, the freshest wrap of news and current affairs on your radio. I'm Swetha Das, and with me in the studio today is my co-host, Shami Sivasubramanian. Yes, it is I, and we have a great show today. We'll be talking about whether it's better to sever our ties with the colonial past before we address um, Indigenous recognition, or should we not do that? set our kind of affairs in order first. And to shed more light on that, we'll be speaking to lawyer and human rights advocate Teela Reid on the role of Indigenous voices in the Australian Republican debate. But before that, we are going to speak to reporter and photojournalist Medulla Amin and artist and photographer Lockie Hinton, who wrote a fantastic piece for the New York Times about the devastating situation in Nauru. But first, if you could legally change a part of your identity what would it be? Text in 0409-945-945. Now, this week, Dutch 69-year-old Emil Rattelband, that's his name? Sure. Okay. Uh, has told a court he wants to legally change his age to 49, so 20 years younger than he is, on the grounds of being discriminated against on dating apps. Uh, let's take a listen to what he has to say about this. And I, I feel I suffer under my age because I'm much more younger then I'm 68. When I'm really 49 again, I will have a baby again. I will buy a new car again. I have hope again. I'm new again. And there, the whole future is there for me again. Um, wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> firstly, why would you reduce your age just to 49? Like, like, you could go so much younger. Like, it just feels like a strange logic chain, but nonetheless, it's his decision. If you have um, if you have any ideas on what you would legally like to change about yourself, text us in on 0409-945-945. To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks, Colin. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Before we get into this next interview, um, we just wanted to flag that some of the content we are speaking about might be disturbing to listeners. So just a warning there. Okay, now going on. The situation in Nauru's offshore detention centre is fraught, to say the least. Reports of suicides and children committing self-harm have been rampant in the news cycle. Most confronting is the overall disengaged state of these refugees, just waiting to find out what will happen next. Relocating to America, to New Zealand, or Australia even. Seems unlikely at the current state, but we'll see. Two young Australian journalists went to Nauru and spoke to Tamil and Lebanese refugees, many of whom were minors and many of whom had experienced self-harm. Together, they wrote a piece for the New York Times, and we have them here in the studio right now. Reporter and photojournalist Medulla Amin and artist and photographer Lucky Hinton. Hi, guys. Hey. Hello. How's it going? So, Medulla first, um, tell us about your experiences on Nauru. Is it as grave as we hear it is? I think a lot of people expect me to come out of Nauru and say it's a massive, massive hellhole and um, it's the worst. The thing about Nauru is that nothing happens there and that's a different kind of hell to what people are probably imagining. 
It's not fire and flames, even though when I arrived, I was bitten by mosquitoes top to bottom, lucky nose. I had to kind of um, really take care of myself there. And and it's brutally hot. Like, it sits on the equator. So as soon as you go in there, you're you're suffocating. And these refugees were in uh, tents up up until the Pacific Forum um, a few months ago. So you can just imagine their state of mind um, there. But you can loop the island in 30 minutes. So it's, it's not that it's the worst place on earth. It's just that you can't start a life there um, as someone who's probably not a local. And even then, locals, there's an unemployment rate of like a huge amount. I don't know exact statistics, but we mainly about, didn't see. About 90% 90% locals unemployed, yeah. yeah so it's, it's pretty dire. Yeah, it's a dire place for sure. I guess uh, one thing that really stuck out to me was a quote from psychologist Dr. O'Connor on the mental state of the refugees there. Um, the quote was, they'd look right through you when you try to talk to them. What goes through your head when you see that happen, mm. when you talk to them? Yeah, that was, it was a pretty hard aspect um, interviewing some of these people. Uh, one girl, Saji, who was an eight-year-old from Sri Lanka, she, she just had this thousand-yard stare during our interview. She just wasn't, wasn't present, wasn't there at all. Um, and she was severely mentally traumatized from about five years on Nauru. Um, so yeah, just some very broken people um, who just sort of seem shattered by by their time there and not being able to, you know, achieve any of their goals or, or aspirations. You speak of Sanji. Um, this is the eight-year-old girl Sanjeevana that you wrote yeah. quite a lot about yeah. in your piece. It's a gorgeous piece on on the New York Times. I definitely recommend everyone read it. Um, and Medulla, uh, I remember that um, because she speaks so frankly about wanting to take her life, eventually she was moved to Brisbane with her dad. Mm. Um, and he said in the interview that he felt like it was moving from one limbo to another. Is that a fair comparison of the state of affairs? Yeah, I think even though, you know, ScoMo or the current government is saying that moving them off is kind of the solution that's not a final solution for these people because that's not resettlement and that's not where they're able to begin their lives um i did get a text message this morning that they do do have a house in brisbane now but they're still unsure of their status as citizens of a country and these people have been running for years years and years and a medical evacuation isn't a final solution so you are still in limbo even though you might not be on nauru if you're sitting in a hotel room or if you're sitting in a hospital, your life still hasn't started. I guess what was the biggest surprise that you learned when you moved to when you went to Nauru? Like what were the kind of preconceived notions that were shattered after seeing and speaking to those people? Um, well we tried to go in with a pretty open mind, to be honest. We didn't really know what to expect. Uh, you know, we'd we'd all heard some pretty bad stories, but given the fact that Australian media aren't allowed into Nauru. It's, it's pretty pretty thin details on, on how people are living over there. Um, and I, I've been to some fairly um, <laughs> interesting places like North Korea, Cuba, that kind of thing to, to make art. But I think Nauru is sort of the probably the most broken place I've ever seen. Um, everyone we, we met and interviewed there were sort of extraordinarily unhappy um, and, and just sort of yeah, just, just shattered and, and worn down um, from the system of offshore detention. Um, yeah, and to the point of, of self-harm, some of them had been sexually assaulted, physically assaulted on the island. So, yeah, it was, it was quite a bit darker than we, 
we mm. thought actually. And it, the problem goes deeper. I think what surprised us, because as a journalist, you don't go in with a bias. You just report the world as you, as you see it. And um, what we found was way deeper than the refugees. What we found was a, a corruption um, side to the Nauruan government where there's a heavy reliance on that RPC3 to, to, to make sure that that economy doesn't collapse. And that was one of the major reasons that the, this RPC was chosen. Um, to be hosted on Nauru. So that really shocked us, just the, mm. level, the levels and the complexities of this issue don't just, you know, stop with, you know, refugees as a human currency. It actually goes deeper as, like, the livelihood of an island nation in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, you yeah. were saying, like, 25% of their GDP is based on Australian um, foreign aid? Mm. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's that's the, the transaction that is made to host these people. And... That's probably why, as you know, Matthew Betsua said, he was the chief secretary, secretary, and he was a justice minister. He went on record with us to tell us that he did not know that this was going to be the mainstay income. It was meant to be a three-month deal. Wow. Um, well, the Australian government has been pretty mum on the entire issue, claiming they were working towards a solution, while also being pretty hard-lined about not relocating any refugees to Australia. So... I guess, where do you guys think the issue is headed and what does the future look like for these people and maybe for Australians as well? I, I think just on what Madula was saying there about this whole sort of undercurrent of, um, of corruption that, that's sort of feeding the centre, um, it, it, yeah, it puts into question the future of, um, of these people. And, you know, it, it, I think sort of Nauru needs refugees on Nauru as much as Australia wants refugees on Nauru. It's a, it's a two-way street. So I don't think that the Nauruan government's in any real hurry to, to get these people out of there, unfortunately. They've become a bit of a currency for the country. Um, so I think they... And they need to process. If it's a processing centre, you don't keep someone there for five years. I think that's really a root of the problem is the time spent. There are a number of solutions. It's maybe a one-time deal. You bring everyone to Australia, you process them, resettle, or you get everyone off the island and you accept the New Zealand offer, but even then, that's a six-year deal. That's only 100 refugees per year, and that's... If you add another three years to these people, I really do think the suicides will increase. So that, I don't even think, is a final solution. So um, it mm. might just be that... I, I have a feeling it might could be that you reduce the processing time to three months, and you that's, that's the maximum that people spend on Nauru before they get resettled. Mm. Um, thanks, both of you, for being here. That was reporter and photojournalist Mridula Amin and artist and photographer Lucky Hinton chatting to us about the experiences of refugee children living on Nauru. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, guys. We love your work. Keep doing it. Um, it's fantastic that you were able to shed a light on this. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having us in. No worries. Well, now we're going to have lawyer and human rights advocate Teela Reid in the studio shortly to speak to us about the importance of a First Nations voice before we reconsider an Australian Republic referendum. Stay tuned for that after this song. This is I Shall Love by Julian Holter. Back chat. Text 0409-945-945. We've got Teela Reid in the studio to tell us more about the Uluru Statement and what it means for Australia moving forward. Teela is a proud Wiradjuri and Wildwan woman born and raised in central western New South Wales. Teela is a lawyer and human rights advocate. She was previously Australia's female youth delegate to the United Nations Permanent Forum and most recently she was a delegate to the landmark constitutional dialogues that culminated in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Thanks for coming in, Teela. Thanks for having me. Oh my God, our pleasure. So what needs to happen before we start thinking about an Australian Republic referendum? So... 
historically, the things that we need to start thinking about really is the silence and the exclusion of First Nations people from our democratic process. So we know when, you know, the constitution was founded that we were excluded. We were expected to die out, essentially. Before we consider whether or not we should move towards a republic, we really need to think about that fundamental place that First Nations play within our democratic life. So could you give us some background on the Uluru reforms that were presented at the government this year? So the Uluru Statement from the Heart essentially presented a sequence set of reforms, Mm -hmm. a roadmap to how we would like to see the recognition of First Nations peoples. We know that our exclusion is, it goes back a long way, a long time, Um, but we also know that there isn't one single reform that will fundamentally address the issues that we're facing. So the Uluru Statement from the Heart set out three reforms. Firstly, a First Nations voice to Parliament and then treaty and truth-telling, okay, through through a Makarata process. Now, when the dialogues were conducted around the country, there were lots of debates around models and, and what type of recognition there should be. One of the fundamental things that the Uluru Statement says is that it we are basically, let, let's not touch the race power, okay? Let's focus on a recognition that's going to empower our people through, um, you know, the many diverse nations that we have. It recognised that if we were, if we had treaties in Australia, if it, if it was so easy to get treaty in Australia, we would already have that. So one of the things that um, a lot of the delegates were debating was how do we get there? Our primary issue will be, is treaty we have never ceded our sovereignty but the government doesn't listen when Mm. we come to the table yeah so that was why a constitutional enshrinement of our voice was the first reform in a sequence of reforms so Tila um Okay, so help me understand this, because when I think of us having a referendum to become a republic, I go, okay, cool, we're severing our ties from our colonial past, we're getting rid of them, and wouldn't that technically free us up as a nation to to properly um, give recognition to our Indigenous people? Wouldn't that kind of put us in a position to better give recognition? Like, the idea of trying to sort it all out with the colonialism kind of still hanging over us um, through the monarch and through having the queen as a head of state, um, I don't know, to me seems a bit kind of encumbering. Is well, that not true? Well, so so do you mean your position is you want a re- I don't know if it's first? my position that, per se. Is that se. what your argument is? It's, it's not my argument per se, but it's more just something that came to mind, I guess, when I read about the issue. Okay. So, look, put it this way. You can't try and free up, I guess, our colonial roots by by becoming a republic simply through changing the head of state and going, we'll deal, deal with this now and deal with the blackfella issue later. It's not going to happen, you know. So what we need to do is we need to do what should have been done in the very beginning was to recognise that First Nations lived here first. We were the first sovereign nations of the country and the islands and the waters. Um, and that once that issue is addressed, then we can talk about unifying us through a republic process. Um, the crucial issue is is the exclusion of mm-hmm. First Nations. What does that look like in a, a republic Australia? 
Um, my question is, um, in a Republic Australia, wouldn't we be in a position to better include? Because obviously we should have done this from day dot. I agree with you completely. And I, I, I feel it's safe to say quite a lot of our listeners would also agree with that. But moving forward to a place that we can rectify those um, wrongs as best as we can, aren't we in a better position to rectify those wrongs without the monarch in our way? That's what I is that not a fair point? No, it sounds it, it's it's almost counterintuitive that 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 sequence that you're putting forward to become a republic first, ignore the fact that you know what the British did to us, um, and just kind of jump a part of history. So, what we need to do is we need to get real about I guess the truth telling of our history, um, the. The process that we need moving forward towards a republic, Australia, and also we we don't have a great history of of referendums in this country. We can't waste the opportunity now that was presented in the Uluru Statement from the Heart to just skip totally um, towards a reform and a republic that will have no impact on the ground for for First Nations people. Will it recognise our voices? Probably not, because right now the model is symbolic. Um, it's simply about changing the head of state. Do Australians really want to go down the path of ignore, continuing to ignore First Nations um, in in this in the process and reform before we, you know, I mean, what does a what does an Australian Republic look like? Does that mean? Lots of things flow from that. It means that changing the anthem, changing the flag, all those national things that look, you know, that shape a nation. So does an Oz Republic where you um, basically skip the point of recognising First Nations but then suddenly um, want to in- include us in those kinds of national symbolic gestures because so, we're sick of symbolism? So ultimately it's that you don't trust that a referendum will put us in a position to better recognize our First Nations people that we haven't done for so long. So you don't trust that process and therefore would rather we set our house in order before we go forward? Is that... I totally believe in the process and the people. I absolutely think that we should have a referendum, but the referendum should be solely on a First Nations voice. Okay. So I guess, you know, it's... Well, Malcolm Turnbull rejected the Uluru Statement last year. So it sounds like there's a lot of institutional kind of obstacles. So... I guess, you know, obviously we want institutional change. What kind of cultural change would you like to see? I think we honestly just need the general Australian public to care about the issues confronting First Peoples and to ask themselves, you know, the single question, do First Nations deserve a voice in this democratic process considering mm-hmm. we have been historically excluded for so long? Around the world there are lots of different models of of First Peoples having uh, an active role in the democratic process. Here, um, we are very silent. Yes, we have parliament, Indigenous parliamentarians, and they are fantastic and they do a great job, but they don't represent the interests of their nations. You, I remember you came on the show before, you were fantastic, and you were talking about how in Canada and in New Zealand... They're just so much better at this. And we're just it's just Australia that really is stagnant. Like, how do you feel knowing that this republic debate seems to be more palatable talking to Australians than actually talking about a First Nations voice? I think once you actually have a conversation with general Australians about 
the history of exclusion, they're actually really open to mm. having the conversation. Right now, there's just been such a silence around, um, you know, the recognition of our rightful place in the country. Um, and if people don't, if the issue doesn't affect them, then, yeah. you know, they don't see a reason to continue to discuss it. But even as I go around and I speak at different events, people who are unsure um, about, you know, whether or not they would support a First Nations voice, once you have the conversation with them about the, you know, what it what it could give and what it could offer um, Australia, lots of people become really supportive of it and they're like, why have we not already yeah. done this? Yeah. Are you telling me that us in comparison to other nations are so far behind? Mm-hmm. The problem is civics education in Australia has been so silent on um, on our on who we are um, as First Peoples. And, and I think education has had a lot to do with that. You know, people have grown up and a lot of people haven't even met a First Nations person, which is crazy to me. So I think that was the offer that was on the table through the Uluru Statement was recognise our history. This is You're not going to lose anything. You're going to gain so much, you know, knowledge and um, about who we are that can only shape our future for the better. Cultural change, institutional change, education. We love your work, Teela. You're absolutely fantastic. And it's going to be very interesting to see how this all unfolds with ScoMo as the Prime Minister. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, such an enjoyable chat with you. Well, that Thanks, was Teela Reid talking to us about the importance of a First Nations voice before we decide on the issue of an Australian Republic. She is amazing, as you heard. So look out for her written work online. You can also follow her on Twitter at Teela Reid. The, the Australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses. Does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons? Or is the Australian taxpayer paying for those as well? Back chat, your alternative to talk back. You're listening to Back Chat on FBI Radio and you're here with Shami and me, Swatha Das, as we cover the big stories in Australia this week. Now, what's caught your eye this week, Shami? Oh, so much has caught my eye, but most of all, I've been enjoying the Prime Minister's very, very public makeover bu- makeover tour. Makeover bus, I was going to say, but his tour. His bus has also <laughs> caught my eye. Yeah. Big bus. Huge bus. Huge. Anyway, so you might have seen that the ScoMo bus has been trekking around the electorates of Queensland. And when he hasn't been making funding announcements or mingling um, Melbourne Cup revelers, uh, he's been donning a rip curl cap. You know, those gorgeous yeah. things we used to wear <laughs> back in year seven to be cool. Um, turning up the Aussie accent which, you know, I nail daily on a daily yeah, basis. killing it. Killing it, crushing it. Um, and uploading videos to social media about how he's just the average Aussie bloke. Uh, he's, okay, you know what? Um, Sean Kelly wrote a fantastic feature on ScoMo in The Monthly. I would highly recommend everyone reading it. It's not behind a uh, paywall. And he talks about how, um, of all the Prime Ministers, ScoMo really encompasses this idea of being the average Joe Blow, like the guy mm. who came from the suburbs and became the leader of the nation. You went to public school, you know that? Okay. I, I know, that's <laughs> such right. an elitist thing. I went to public school as well, just oh, I yeah. want to put that as a you disclaimer. You and I both went to public school. You went to selective school, which... I know, I went to a public school before selective school. Oh, yeah. I didn't... But I didn't, it both worked. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't that smart. So I like, liked the... <laughs> all right. <laughs> I like, liked the estimation, then after going to a selective school, I'm like, okay, you're all attacking me. Anyway, so ScoMo, his rebrand is really interesting. I'd love to know who his PR team, if it's Roxy. Good work. Ooh, yeah, but, I um, how you feel about Roxy. I think, you know, the rebrand is really important because he 
is prime minister after like what five prime ministers and so it's not only about your policy and legacy but it's about your brand so that's really interesting um which is which is very interesting um but our time is running out and before we go the agenda is on next on fbi yeah. So stick around for them. Agenda's hey. on after FBI. And we actually have <laughs> our lovely friends from our lovely friend from Agenda on. Can you tell us what's happening? Yeah. Uh, so we've been on a little break for a few weeks. So we're back. We're very excited about it. There's lots of new music. And that's uh, something that we'll be talking about a lot today. Um, especially Ariana Grande's uh, new breakup song. Yes, which, thank you, Next. Uh, yeah, I feel you know like... What? I try to play it and I can't load it on the Spotify. Oh, great. Well, hopefully by the time we're on, we can, Please play, it. <laughs> oh we my can God. play it. Um, but we're talking about that in relationship to like the eroticism of pop music um, and talking a little bit about Audre Lorde's poetry, who's oh, like awesome. a feminist 1970s kind of poet Yeah. Um, and reflecting on that. Uh, also talking... Uh, what else are we talking about? Yeah, so many things. Lots, um, of, lots of things <laughs> happening. And you guys are on in literally four minutes. We are, so yeah. everyone listening. Please listen. Please this listen Katie, to Katie, right? Yes. Katie, yep. who is your co-host? Katie Winton and Tanya Ali is my co-host. Amazing. Right. We love Agenda. I think we've got an Ariana Grande FBI morning because I think all the best talked a lot about it as well. Yeah, of course. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is now a Stan account. FBI yeah. is now an Ariana Grande Stan account. So at the, Excellent. At, at the top of the show, we were asking people um, if you could change anything about yourself legally what would it be? So a Dutch man wanted to make himself 20 years younger legally. And we actually got a text in who said that they would change their height because they're like six foot. And if they wear heels, they're like six two. Jasmine from Ingleburn has said that. If you could change anything about yourself legally, mm. what would it be? Oh, God. Oh, oh. I, th- that's a tough question. I don't know. Is it you don't know? <laughs> you don't know. Nothing. I love that. I just, I, I'm, I'm fine with so myself as I am. I so. love you're perfect. You're perfect as you are. You don't yeah. need to change anything. I love you it. You Anyway, so that's all we have time for today. Thanks again to Taylor Reed and Medulla Armin and Lucky Hinton for chatting to us today. And thank you as always to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska, Eden Faithful, Amelia Zhao, Cameron, whose surname is... Will- <laughs> what is your surname, Cameron? <laughs> Wilson. Wilson, brilliant. Cameron Wilson. Week three, guys, week three. Cameron it's Wilson. It's my week three. <laughs> it's my week three. That's why, everyone, bear with me. Um, anyway, I'm Shami Sivasubramanian, that name. I know, and I'm here with Sweta Das. Yeah, we'll catch you all next week, guys. <laughs> Thanks for sticking by us, and now stay tuned for Agenda. That was Katie from Agenda just speaking to us. We're going to leave you with the song. This is New Orleans by Brockhampton. See you all next week. Bye. <laughs>